Strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory. Tactics without strategy is the noise before the defeat. There I go again, just another software CEO quoting Sun Tzu. I am basically the definition of cliché. Clichés are cliché for a reason though, right? And what I take away from Sun Tzu is less about the content and more about the dichotomy of his words. What we've learned from successful businesses that are growing revenue or generals that are marching in the battle or surgeons that are saving lives is that success comes from the constant agonizing doldrums of thinking through every scenario, every reaction, and the context of those scenarios and reactions. There's a reason leadership can be lonely. That racing that's going on inside your head, it's hard for anyone else to understand. Yet that agonizing is for naught if not coupled with execution. You must push forward into the heat knowing that you're likely to fail, adjusting based on these successes and failures with more discipline than can be mustered. Every decision has a trade-off and every decision has a consequence. This dichotomy of constantly oscillating between strategizing and execution is a perfect topic for our guest today, Wade Foster. Wade built Zapier to a $4 billion valuation fully remote with only a little over $1 million in funding and without a clearly defined market. His journey is the definition of our dichotomy, and he's going to help us out with our own journeys coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, we sit down with Wade Foster to discuss SaaS growth strategy. He tells us about the democratization of automation, not hiring until it hurts, aligning on a singular strategy to empower individual execution, manufacturing a leveraged growth machine, and straddling the many precipices of entrepreneurship. Where did this come from, right? Where did this, uh, I don't I can't imagine you were obsessed with integrations and things like that in the early days. I know you did a little dabbling in industrial engineering and a bunch of other fun stuff. So like what, what why this idea versus you know, other things that, that you could have written? Yeah. So I worked at a small business and we used tools like Basecamp and uh, Campaign Monitor and QuickBooks. And in my side projects with my co-founder, Brian, we would get asked to build these integrations from time to time. So we built like a WordPress forms plugin where you could, you know, put a form up on your WordPress site and you can send those leads into like Salesforce or, or other places. And um, he sort of had the realization that most people need to connect these tools. And so if we could build like a, a self-serve way for people to do this themselves, they wouldn't have to hire us. Uh, you know, it's mm. expensive to hire engineers. It's hard to find engineers. And so um, that was kind of where the, the interest in the idea came from. And me being a user of all these tools, I just had fallen in love with SaaS and like, model and like the idea that you could just sort of put something up on the internet and someone halfway across the world could sign up for your tool and it could run their business. Like to me, that was just like such a cool thing. Having grown up in sort of like a small conservative town, it was like this idea that you could could make something from someone anywhere was was pretty pretty exciting. And so that's kind of where the original idea spun up from. No, that's cool. And I know you you guys started because you you won Columbia, I believe it was Columbia Startup Weekend in Missouri. Yeah, yeah. We sort of did that. We built the first prototype there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and then you know you jumped right into YC. Like, could you imagine staying in Missouri to build this? Or was the dream always to kind of head to to the Bay Area? Well, so we after that startup weekend, we we did apply to YC and got rejected right away. And so um, okay. 
Yeah, we had at that point in time, we were just sort of like, oh, well, you know, um, that, that kind of stinks. We'll but else. like, we're just we'll just keep working on it. So we worked on Zapier nights and weekends for, um, you know, six, eight, nine months, something like that. Uh, and, you know, had made like a lot of progress. We got into the the to where we had. I think about a thousand people on a beta. Um, you know, we had, a, I think like 10,000 on a waiting list and, um, those beta users were paying us. And then we applied to YC again and got accepted that time. And that was when we sort of said, okay, maybe we should go out there and see what this is all about. I think for us, you know, there wasn't like this massive pull to be in the Bay area or anything like that, but it just felt like we're going to be integrating with all these different tools. Um, it's probably useful to be, near where those folks are. Um, that was kind of the, the logic at the time. No, that's cool. And, you know, since then, obviously you guys have scaled like, pretty substantially. Like, I think you're nine years old now. I think I saw that on Twitter. Yeah. It, yeah. This week was our ninth, uh, ninth birthday, I suppose. <laughs> there you go. And what, what are some of like the, um, you know, you mentioned the 2000 apps. What are some of the other like back of the baseball card stats right now in terms of size of the company and team, these sets of things? Yeah, you know, we've got uh, 350-ish people spread across. We've, we've been remote, you know, since the beginning. So we're spread across something like 25 or 30 different states in the U.S. and, you know, a similar number of countries in the world. 1.5 million businesses use us in some capacity, um, you That's know, every month. Uh, so, um yeah, it's a it's it's a lot different than nine years ago. The other thing that's kind of interesting about you guys and some of the other because um, we had this like SaaS 1.0, which was very show my boss I'm doing work, right? And this is like the mm -hmm. first wave of CRMs and these types of things. And then from there, we got into you know products like Zapier and, and some others out there where it's just like the point isn't to do the work; it's just to get the outcome. So how can we mm -hmm. do the work for you? As you were kind of talking about, but yeah. you also have like companies like Twilio, which I also kind of connect you guys to because you know Twilio is very infrastructure. You guys are connecting pipes for a very like weak definition of you know what you guys do, but. Is there a world where you guys go up one layer of abstraction and start to build on top of all these integrations? And then with that end up kind of taking on like more of those things that need to get done for people? Or is that something that, you know, is, is maybe in the great future, but kind of a pipe dream right now? Our mission is to democratize automation, make it available for everyone. And I think um, there certainly is this layer that is interesting to us when, when we'll dig in, if we'll dig in, I think is sort of TBD where, you know, a lot of it, we get these power users that set up all these fascinating things. And so there's an aspect of that that you're talking about here where it's like, how can we make that experience simpler for them? How can we provide more of that uh, out of the box or how can we give them more, of the puzzle pieces that they need to get to the, to the finish line quicker with less hassle. Um, so that there certainly is an aspect of that that is enticing. I think you look at the whole no code movement, like we play such a central role in that. Um, and there's this sort of dream where it's like, well, how can you just build the app with as little hassle as possible? And there is, there's something there, I think. Yeah. Is there, Kind of an interesting question. I don't know. If, I don't think you'll find it offensive, but it's. I don't know if you want to answer it. Is uh, which is a great preface for a question, of course. I I don't know of any good competitors to you guys, or at least I don't I haven't heard of them. And when I think of some of the competitors that are out there, they have mostly either gone up market. They're kind of like mm -hmm. we're going to be the enterprise version of, of you guys, or they've 
somehow gone niche, but that hasn't really worked because the market like is, are, am I just not seeing these people? You don't have to name them, of course. Or is it something that, that, that you haven't really seen? And I'm just kind of curious why there wouldn't be. Well, I mean, I think in any sort of successful industry, you have people who are trying to figure out how they can, you know, get in on the action too. So we definitely have our fair share of folks who are playing in the space. To your point, they're trying to find their angle, right? They're trying to find, oh, maybe upmarket is my angle. Maybe uh, I can niche it down in this area and, and have some success. And uh, some of them are doing, you know, they're doing well, right? They're, they're finding their place in the market and having some success. I think the challenge that, you know, exists is that, you know, we connect to so much stuff. We connect to so many yeah. things. And so if you're just looking for a place where you're like, you know, I, I just know that, like, if you come to Zachary, you just know we're going to support it. Like, we just support yeah. so much of the world that it's hard for anyone else to, like, catch up to that. And is the playbook now basically just replicate what works, right? Like, find new channels. Um, obviously, you're doing some, like you said, you're doing some maybe things you wouldn't have done in year one or two because you've Ex mm -hmm. exploited all the other channels right and then just keep adding different products or is there is there something where you're like cool we have this playbook going but now we need another mm -hmm. major layer on top of it like how do you think of that I, I do think there's like a big um education aspect to this and when i say education i think part of that i think a lot of people like jump straight to like literature or content and stuff like that and certainly that's the case i think there certainly is an aspect of that for us where it's like we can just do a better job of, you know, teaching folks how to think about automation, teaching them how to do this, advocating for the category, advocating for the space. So there's a big aspect of that there, but there's an, also a critical product aspect to this as well, which is how do we really help people get started with this stuff? How do we make it really easy for them to get going? I think as products age and mature, um, like a Zapier, uh, you know, the temptation there is to keep throwing more features at it because your customers keep at wanting and asking for more things. And it's good to listen to that. But I think you always have to remember that every day you have people who are just discovering you for the first time. And that's where most of your future lies. And so you want to make sure that that first run experience with your product always stays simple and accessible. And then you have to start thinking about, well, how do you take those customers then and introduce them to some of these more advanced concepts over time? rather than just sort of shoving like a bucket of features up front and saying like, look, we've got everything. Uh, that's when you start to get some of these products where you're like, well, it just becomes enterprise software at that point. In time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, get past, you get past the RFE process, but then you try and use the thing and it's like, I don't yeah. even know where to start. Or 40% of your revenue comes from services that are basically, what do you want us to build? Yeah, that type of thing. Yeah, exactly. It's like, well, I have all the features, but you also need to hire me now to use the features for you. You've become yeah. a consultancy. And you scale, I mean, obviously you guys have scaled, Cloud 100, lots of fun, you know, uh, fun accolades and things like that. Like, when you think about your scaling, have there been a couple of, you know, factors? Because obviously everyone wants to know, you know, the secret formula, the secret sauce here, but really it's it's probably not like one thing. Like, when you think about going from day zero to, to year nine now, like, what have been the, what's been the framework or the big things that really contributed to that growth? Yeah. I mean, I think for, for, for me, for my co-founders, a big thing that we did in the early days is we didn't really rush to like scale in terms of people in the business. Um, instead, we stayed very focused on like what the customers needed and where the product wasn't meeting their needs. And so between the three of us, 
one of the things that makes us good co-founders is we all have complementary skills. Like we can get, sure, we're not great at everything, but like between the three of us, we could get almost any job done, like to a sort of fine enough level. Maybe it wouldn't be world-class, but it was like sufficient to move the goalposts a little bit and get to the next milestone. In those early days, we really just focused on like, how can we get to that next spot? What is the next thing that we have to get to? Um, whether it was launching our developer platform or, you know, looking at our pricing and packaging or adding a new feature like multi-steps apps. Um, it was like really just trying to understand what are the things that customers need and how do we deliver that to them? Uh, and so along the way, yeah, we built team and we added, but we had this saying in the early days, which we, we sort of had to shift away from maybe four or five years in, but when the saying was like, don't, don't hire till it hurts. Like we wanted to know that the next person we're bringing into this company, we wanted to know what job that was, how to do it and how to set them up for success. And I think that was really useful for us because we were all first time founders. And so it made it a lot easier for us to, to manage the work because we knew what the work was. We knew what went into it. And I think if we had a sort of taken a more, you know, blitz scaling approach to it, like we would have been out of our depth very quickly because we weren't experienced managers. We weren't experienced in these other ways. And this allowed us to like really solve what customer needs, but that front and center. So it allowed us to, to make sure that we were pushing the company and it allowed us to have a bit more of a, I mean, it still was a steep learning curve, but I think it made it more achievable to learn how to like manage, lead, grow a business because we weren't trying to do it at, you know, an insane speed compared to maybe what some other companies do. Um, the irony of course, along the way is that we still managed to grow quite quickly. You know, we were, um, doubling headcount year after year up until, you know, maybe just a year or two ago, which is, but even still like we're, you know, adding 50% new people, but the, the base is much larger now. That was a little bit, I think of the core philosophy early on is that don't hire till it hurts focus on the customer, really understand their needs, understand what we got to do to get to the next step and do that next, not try and get too, too, too far ahead of ourselves. Has that changed going from the three of you to 350? Like, is it still? Oh, it absolutely has had to change. I think, you know, the don't hire till it hurts. I can tell you exactly when it failed on us. It, there was a point in time where our growth trajectory got so quick that if we would have kept the don't hire till it hurts in place. Like we would have been in constant pain, uh, especially like on our customer support. So I remember when we launched multi-steps apps, we had, let's say, well, back of the envelope, let's say our, our, our signups doubled and it sort of stayed that high mm. from that point forward. So overnight, what that meant was our support team was basically half of what it needed to be. And, you know, it was six people at the time. So it needed to be 12. So we were now six people behind on our hiring roadmap. And so we just had to learn like, okay, we're just at a scale now that you have to start doing some forecasting. Like our growth is going to keep growing. It's not going to slow down. We can, it takes, you know, 30 days, 60 days to hire, find and hire a person. It takes another 60 days before they're like successful in the job. So like you just sort of have to like map that stuff out and figure out like, okay, if our growth is going to look like this, we need to start having people in here who can help these customers out. Otherwise we're going to be disappointing our customers. And so that's sort of like, I guess you sort of had to start forecasting when the pain was going to be there a little bit yeah, uh, yeah. To, to be able to do this well. 
So I think that was sort of a moment when it had to shift, but there still very much is, you know, I think there's been times on our journeys where I've, I've sort of tried to like lean, like delegate the work, um, a, a, to a certain degree, like, or to a, a lot to be like, Oh, I can really pass it off. And, and that's sometimes gone great. And that's sometimes been like, Oh, I, I, I got too far away from it. Uh, mm. and then there's other times where I've had to lean back in and like really try and get in to help it get to the next step. Uh, and then there's other times when I've done that and it's clear that I'm not being helpful, that I'm like micromanaging and I'm not helping the team get to the goals. And so like, those are things that as we've gotten past that, like don't hire till it hurts that I've had to learn candidly still learn, like where's the right place to sort of lean in when's the right place to do it. Um, and how do you, how do you, how do you know? That's like the, the billion dollar question, right? Because it's, you know, and you deal with that from three to five, five to 10. And then obviously mm-hmm. from, you know, three to three fifty. What, what's been, what's been helpful with that? Cause I'm sure you've made some mistakes and hopefully not made them over and over again, but what's been helpful in kind of calibrating when to jump in, when to let the, the next chef kind of use the tools and then when to kind of I, jump in and see. Yeah. I think the thing that the rule of thumb that I've had, that I've gotten to, which is not perfect, but I think is, has been the thing that's worked the best for me is it works best when me and the person managing the, the whatever that set of you know uh, work is are really tight on what the strategy is. We're tight on you know who's the customer serving, what's the problem that they have, what's the metric that we're trying to move, what are some ways that we think it could it could we could potentially do that. And if we feel tight on those things, and that we're we're aligned of a singular vision, then I feel pretty good saying like go make it happen. Um, but if we're sort of missing the gap, like if we're not, like if we're not jiving on those things, if I'm sort of saying like, I really don't think that is the problem or like, I really don't think that your plan to get there is, is feasible in some way. That's when it's like, we got to come back to the drawing board. We got to spend more time on this because I don't feel comfortable stepping away from it at that point in time. And that's the only, that's the, probably the closest I've ever gotten to sort of like a bit of a framework for how to think about this type of problem. Do you find that, I mean, basically what you're saying is, is argue about the strategy, argue about the framework in and of itself, and then let the execution go. Like, do you find that that ultimately is just a big trust, trust feature of making sure it is a big trust trust person. It totally is a big trust piece. And so certainly trust comes along from, you know, them having done, awesome things before and been successful before in the company that like that goes a long way. Um, there is an aspect too of like, there's, there is strategy sometimes baked into the execution. And so we have to like be keyed in on that to a certain degree Mm -hmm. as well. Um, and so if we're keyed in on that, then it really gets good. I think there's times when you can sort of agree on all the strategy, but if you don't agree on the execution piece, um, you still might not be good at it. Like if, you know, one person's, thinking is like, Oh, I, like, I totally agree on this. And, um, I think that I'm going to just go hire, you know, five people to go like brute force this problem versus someone might actually say like, well, actually you can do it in a more, um, lean way, uh, or more like leveraged way. If you found this other pro, maybe wrote some code or built a little product for it. 
different situations, you might do one or the other. It just sort of depends. But like you kind of got to be agreed on that stuff because uh, otherwise you sort of get you're just going to be frustrated, I think, is what it boils down to. At least yeah. I am. Like I get frustrated. No, I know. And it, it and when you get frustrated, no matter how you manifest that frustration, it's it's not good for the execution nor like the relationship with that person either, which is always totally, interesting. Totally. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of like going back up to the macro here on like Zapier um, or the growth that you guys have seen. Is it, is it something where I, I find you guys fascinating because for a lot of reasons, but one of the biggest pieces of fascination is that it doesn't intuitively feel like this market was just there to like grow, right? Like inbound marketing or things like that. You're like, oh, there's bloggers and we're all scaling and we're doing less sales and things like that. But like mm-hmm. this idea of like automation and connecting things, you did see a lot of, um, you know, kind of bespoke integrations, people hiring folks like you guys to, to set up, you know, one-off integrations, but was the market there? Like, is it just that I obviously wasn't a part of it and didn't see it? Or was it something that you guys felt like you kind of hit the market and then it kind of like started? I think it was always a nascent demand that was always there. You know, in the early days, one of the things that convinced us we should spend time on it was that you would go to these forums and people would be asking for integrations with all these different tools. You know, the adoption of SaaS was really starting to get, you know, a nice foothold in, you know, early part of the last decade. Like if you were starting to see, you know, pretty successful companies reaching a million, 10 million ARR, you had a company like Salesforce been around a while and grown to like pretty sizable scale. Certainly QuickBooks had gotten to a certain, certain sizable scale. So like, you were like, you're like, Hey, there's some movement here. More people are using these tools and they need to connect them. That's that felt real. I I wasn't to the extent to which the market is as big as it is. I don't think I did anticipate that. Um, but certainly you could see it there. And I think that's the thing that would surprise most folks who don't, don't spend any time in this space is just how much small businesses are adopting these tools and how much automation they're putting into their business. I think we like to think of automation as this thing that is for, you know, manufacturing companies or it's for like these big enterprises, but the small guy, now they may not always call it automation, but small businesses are doing a lot of this stuff because they have to, you know, they're, they're scrappy. They get by with a limited sets of tools. And so they figure out how can we, look like a bigger company or operate like a bigger company through automation, through these types of tools. And so I think that's a big part of why we've been successful is we've put the capability into their hands and made it accessible to them and, you know, made it so they don't have to write code. Maybe that made it so they could just do a couple clicks of a, you know, configuration thing and then they're off to the races. That kind of transition there was demand there, but I feel like this is a UX nightmare that you guys have dealt with, a UI nightmare in a lot of ways, because, yeah. you know, if I'm inside an app like natively and they're like, oh yeah, connect to this to this, I feel it's a little more intuitive than I have this thing. It talks about zaps and it talks about automation and I'm, you know, uh, you know, 45 year old VP of whatever at some manufacturing plant in Ohio. And I, yeah. you know, I know paper, I know these things, but I don't understand like the word even integration, right? Like, so how did you, how did you deal with that? Because even when you have markets that are growing, you still have to kind of educate them. So, so where we did that come did. From? Like we certainly, you know, Zaps was a new term. Like that was a thing that we sort of made up, um, Triggers and actions were not really a thing. Now we got some help along that front. I think, you know, you look at a lot of these 
productivity experts out there, folks like uh, James Clear or Muriel who wrote Hooked. Like they talk about it in these books. Like if you want to form good habits, like pay attention to the trigger, like pay attention to the moment where it's like, oh, if you, you know, put your uh, dental floss like on top of your, you know, faucet, like that's a trigger mm. to remember to floss your teeth, right? So like we we got some help from like these other folks who are like more broadly educating these concepts around like what is a trigger, right? Um, and what could that mean in the sense of like, oh, this trigger happens and then that should be a cue to do something else. You know, it sort of applies into the software as well too, where you can say, oh, when when I get a new sale, that I always have to do these things. I, you know, a sale comes in and I have to send an invoice out, or I have to, you know, get them in the CRM, or I have to make sure to start a new project in our project management tool. Like that concept is something all of us sort of know intuitively, but we don't always put words to it, right? We don't label it a trigger, right? And so we had to we had to do some education on that along the way, and then part of it was just we sort of avoided it, like people were looking for integrations. And so we just sort of said, hey, we got you. Like, we'll help you connect MailChimp and Salesforce. We'll help you connect uh, Wufu and Aweber. We'll help you connect uh, PayPal and Basecamp or whatever it is that you're interested in and sort of avoided the like category education piece for a while. Mm. Yeah, so you're just going after basically the people who were putting up their hands and things and no matter how they put up their hands. Exactly. It's like, I need this tool. And we said, yep, we've got you. We had had pages for that. You know, we had spots on our site where they could read about every specific one that they were curious about. Yeah. And one of the amazing things I feel about you guys is that it's, it's very, um, I feel like you are the definition of leverage, like your company, not only the product in terms of leveraging time, but just how you guys have grown. Um, one of the most innovative things I think I, and I'm sure it's still producing leads is that basically if you search any two, uh, apps of any kind, there's a Zapier link there of being like, oh, are you trying to connect MailChimp with whatever? Um, when you think about the major things in growth, we talked about a couple of those, but where are some of those coming from, like from scaling? Like, is it SEO? Is it, you know, is it, uh, you know, content? Like what's been the biggest things? And, you know, if you can abstract those up to kind of like a mindset, that would be awesome too. You know, search, it, it works well for us. Our content, we, we write a ton of stuff about best project management apps, best CRM apps. We, we happen to have visibility into how these different tools work and why you might choose this one versus that one, why, what circumstances it makes sense to, to go with this, this app. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time with partners. We have 2,000 plus different apps that we're integrating in with now. And so, you know, most of them are educating their customers on Zapier in some form or fashion. They have a center their integrations directory, they're in help docs, like their sales folks talk about Zapier when integrations come up. All of that stuff also then has just started to create a, a bit of a brand and some word of mouth as well. Um, that piece of things is, is sometimes hard to attribute. And you know, in the last year or two, we've started to do more in advertising as well. And just sort of some of the more classic marketing things that we'd sort of not spend as much time on as we were uh, when we were younger. And so all of these things, I think, I mean, in my mind, like you're just trying to layer these different things on top of each other to help you scale and grow. Like you find one channel, you figure out how to tune it, you figure out how to grow it, you grow it as far as you can. And once you sort of have it humming along, you know what it takes to grow, you get someone in there that can keep, keep nurturing it to the next. And you sort of look out in the world and say like, well, what's, what's a complimentary channel? Where can we sort of try, try to do that again? And you sort of just kind of keep rinse, wash and repeat this over, you know, the places where your customers hang out, the places that you get them in. I think far too many companies come in and try and do all the things and they never really find a single channel that 
scales very well for them. And sort of they're, they're, they're lukewarm. Their message is very bland everywhere you go uh, instead of being like really great in one place. So we've always thought like, how do we make it great in one place? Not worry so much about everything else. And then once we feel it's coming, do it, do it a second time, then do yeah. it a third time. So on and so forth. What, when you're picking those layers in terms of growth, mm-hmm. are you, it sounds like you're being pulled, right? Like you're noticing, mm-hmm. um, like I, like I imagine your expert marketplace now, you noticed a lot of people who were saying they were Zapier experts and therefore, you know, we're helping yeah. people. So like, let's accelerate that. Like, do you ever kind of go into a channel or, or kind of one of these segments and start to push a little bit, or is it always like capitalizing on that momentum you're already feeling? I mean, I think this is the beauty of like freemium and sort of product-led bottoms-up um, adoption is that you get a lot of market data because you get a lot of usage. You get a lot of people playing in your ecosystem. And so you get to sort of watch what naturally happens, what naturally forms around you. And then you can start to use that to inform where you want to place your next bets. And so there always is a little bit of a pull where you're saying, oh, there's something interesting going on there. When you start pushing is when you start to see like, well, there's some pull there, but how can we like, how can we accelerate it? Like it's, it naturally isn't, for example, like coalescing and what it could coalesce in. So like, how can we create something, you know, it could be a product, it could be content, it could be, you know, a sales mechanism, it could be a community. It doesn't really matter what it is. It could be all sorts of different things. Your mind is what sort of limits you there. But how do you, um, you know, coalesce that into a concept and help it become what it really wants to be? But it's just not, it's just not there yet. Yeah. One of the things I've been thinking about in the context of you guys and like the next echelon of growth, which I'm sure you're thinking of a million X more mm-hmm. than I am about Zapier's growth, but mm-hmm. you, you're part of this rise of products and, and we're in this category with some of our products of like this anti-active usage crowd where I'm sure you have people who are optimizing and looking at usage or they're using the product constantly, setting up new Zaps, new you know, yeah. workflows, these types of things. But I'm pretty sure I have a Zapier account that I'm still paying for that I set up for certain triggers that I have not logged into in years. Um, and then we have yeah. our corporate account doing a bunch of different things. Like, how do you think about that? How did you think about that over time? Like, was usage a factor that you even thought about? Like, is this something that you think is going to be more important or is it more obviously oh, yeah. about the outcome? We always want to get more usage, right? But we don't want you to be logging in every day. That story that you sort of said, like, hey, I set it up and I forget it. Like, what better product experience is than that? Than to say, you know, this product does things for me without me having to lift a finger. Like, it literally does work for me while I sleep. That's the dream. Like, everyone wishes that that's how it could be across the things that they have to do, is that they don't have to do this busy work, that they don't have to invest in these things, and they can still get the outcome. That's magical. Our, where we pay attention to it is what else can we help you get that magic for? Um, mm. You know, you've got a few things that you've set up, but I guarantee you there's probably other things that you could also have that sort of magical feeling where it just sort of is hums along for years without you having to pay any attention to it. But it's tricky when you are this sort of invisible set it and forget it product, right? Because you've set it up and you sort of like out of sight, out of mind now. And so to get you to re-engage with us, to get you to come back and think of your use cases, that's where we spend a fair amount of time. What's the hardest feedback you've been given? I mean, I'm going to come back to like the micromanager versus macromanager problem. And 
it's not because this is necessarily the one that's hurt my feelings the most. I've gotten feedback that has certainly hurt my feelings and made me feel like, man, I should have been better. I, I could have done better. Like I've gotten lots of feedback like that over the years. Not to say that I'm a horrible person or anything like that. Uh, I think that's you, what you're you know, saying. You, I'm going to go with that's what yeah, you're saying. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, you get tough feedback like that, but sometimes that, like in my mind, those things are, while tough, they're, they're easier to resolve. Like you just sort of like, yep, I'll own that. I'll own what I did in that situation. And I can work on that. So in that sense, it's while tough to hear, it's easy to fix. The, the macro micro one to me is a very normal feedback that I think almost any leader gets, but it's, it's so hard to tune. It's so hard to get right because, you know, you sort of, if you macro manage sometimes, like people feel great, they love it, but the right things don't get done. If you micromanage, the right things might be getting done, but it feels disempowering. It doesn't feel good. You know, no one likes that. So figuring out just that right spot to like, to land to me is the heart. Like when you just say like, what's the hardest to execute on? To me, that's the hardest to truly just get right over time. And I've, I've scaled every direction on that thing where I've been way too far one way, I've been way too far the other. I've had moments where I've gotten it right, but it's, it's, it's a constant ebb and flow. And I think it, I think it depends too on like who you're working with. Some people you can lean in a little more. Some people you might give a little more. So I'm constantly working on it. Like it's 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 hard. Entrepreneurship is basically just straddling multiple precipices, like just like mm-hmm. constantly, just like pulling and it changes based on the person and all that kind of stuff. Um, what'd you learn from your first job? I'll give you two stories. Um, one, the first thing I ever made money from, um, I was really lucky. I so I grew up in Jeff City, Missouri, which is the capital of Missouri. And uh, I had a saxophone instructor there who had a quartet that played at the governor's mansion. So I played saxophone growing up. And in ninth grade, um, this quartet, when I was in ninth grade, this quartet he had, one of the members had to had left town. Like, I think there was like a family emergency and you know, they had to go help with that or whatever. And so they were sort of left short of a fourth player, like at a critical time. Like, I think there was a gig coming up not too long. And I guess they must've been desperate. I don't know. Um, but they were sort of like, well, my, my instructor sort of stuck, stuck up for me and says, Hey, wait, wait, you come do a practice with us. And I, I think he might be able to do it. So I went, went practice with them and, and ultimately I guess did well enough or, or again, they, they could have just been desperate enough. I'm not, I'm still not really sure. Um, but the, the, the sort of upside was like, I got to play at the governor's mansion like the next week, which was so cool as a ninth grader to be able to do that. And, you know, I got 50 bucks for two hours of playing I got a free meal, free dessert. And it was like, it was so good. Like, it's just really, really great food. Um, and so that was like really awesome. Then that next summer I had my first sort of W2 job, which was as a lifeguard at the local public swimming pool. And that gig was no fun at all. Like you're out in the hot sun all day. There's like kids running around, not paying attention to you at all. You're, you're cleaning up wet toilet paper out of the locker room. And, you know, you work all day. And I think I made like 47 bucks for a full shift. And then you had to pay for your concessions as well. So that came out of your paycheck, got concessions and stuff. So in my mind, like that was the moment where I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like I should be doing the saxophone thing because I make so much more money doing that. But that was like, I think it planted the seed for me around entrepreneurship. It was like, I was never going to sort of trade time for money in that way 
quite again, or just never, like, I, I certainly did, but I, like, it never was, it was more appeasing to me to like create a thing and then people to value that thing and just give you money for it. Like that to me was the cool part of, of playing the saxophone. It's like, Hey, I, I love this so much. I'll just give you money to come do it. No, that's cool. Yeah. I just want to make so many jokes about your life is automation. It's been all about automation, <laughs> right from that saxophone playing. Um, something like that. Uh, what's the biggest risk that you've taken so far? You know, I think counter to like a lot of um, perceptions of entrepreneurs, like I'm not a super big risk taker. Like I, I like to think through it and understand. You know, I think a lot of people would look and say, hey, quitting your job to work on Zapier full time before it was making enough money was, was super risky. Um, and it might've been the most risky thing I've done. Um, but you know, you, you sort of looked at where like, Oh, traffic's coming in from here. Custom, like people are interested from here. Like, you know, mathematically, if we keep growing it this way, it's going to, it's going to work out. So like, there's like, it's hard for me to point to something where it was like very clearly, like, I have no clue what's going to happen here. This is going to be a bad idea. Um, it's hard for me to answer that one. Like I'm not a huge, just like massive risk taker. No, that's cool. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I feel the exact same way too. It's like, no, no, no I'm going to study the data and then make a decision. And then it'll never feel like a risk, even if it was, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think other people can look at it and see the risk. They see how that's scary. They're like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe you would do that. But to me, it's never felt that way. Like I've looked at it and there's definitely areas where I've made a choice, like a choice where I'm like, I'm not sure if it will... I don't know if it's going to work, but I feel good about it. Like, I'm like, this is the, this is a better choice than not doing this. Um, mm. It's sort of where it shakes out um, to me. Special thanks to Wade Foster for lending his time to this interview. Now you have what it takes to execute on your SaaS growth strategy. We talked about the democratization of automation, not hiring until it hurts, aligning on a singular strategy to empower individual execution, manufacturing a leveraged growth machine, and straddling the many precipice of entrepreneurship. If you want to support ProfitWell and the show, we would greatly appreciate if you leave a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen and watch. The podcast gods tend to like that type of thing, and we like to appease the podcast gods. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest-growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. 